tonight we reflect on the sufferings of Christ. By this time on a Friday night, 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus would have already been taken down off of his cross, having died in the afternoon and was placed in a tomb. His loved ones would now be mourning over him in utter bewilderment, confusion and fear mixed with immense grief as their teacher, their friend, their Messiah is gone. Though we have now both the Old and New Testaments with robust centuries-old theologies on the cross, it's still bewildering. There's still mystery there. We're still asking the same questions they did in their grief. Why did it happen? Why did it happen in the way that it happened? What does this say about Jesus? Who is he really? These mysteries have answers, of course, knowable, reasonable answers. They don't lead us to confusion. That's not the type of mystery we're talking about. The mystery of Christ's sufferings lead us to marveling, to adoration, to worship. And that's the goal of tonight, to head back to Golgotha, the place of the skull, to plumb a few mysteries there so that we might marvel at Christ and trust him anew. To that end, let's pray together. Father, you know the hearts of all, and still you sent your Son. And it is only by your Spirit that you can give us understanding of the mysteries of Christ's cross. Guide us, Lord. Focus us, and help us to respond to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I remember some of the struggles I had early on in my Christian faith. Uh, I wouldn't say I had a conversion experience or a kind of a night where I gave my life to the Lord. It's more of a very slow, skeptical on-ramp for me. And one of the things I remember having a really hard time with was the extent of the torment of Jesus' sufferings. You know, we just sang a hymn together. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when you think about it, that's a really grotesque image a fountain filled with blood, and people are happily jumping into. But then you turn to the gospel accounts of Jesus' sufferings, and the detail there is far worse. It's, it's far more disturbing. And it got to a point where uh, I was almost embarrassed to hear anyone go on about Roman crucifixion or Jesus scourging. You know, was this just like shock value, or um, was I supposed to just feel really bad for Jesus? I'd privately ask the question, well, why? Why did it have to be so severe of torture? For Jesus, Why couldn't he have just spoken a word or clapped his hands? Or if he had to die, why couldn't it be quick or just more honorable or something? But the better question I should have been asking was, why was I so embarrassed by it? Why did it bother me so much? And I think it bothered me because I was sold on the good news of Jesus, that God loved me and gave his son for me, but I didn't yet grasp the bad news, the reason that I'm a sinner. So when someone would tell me Jesus loves you, my inward response was like, well, that's great. I love me too. I'm glad that God and I are on the same page. You know, but then you come across, you read your Bibles long enough, come across scriptures like Jeremiah 17, 9, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Or the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth in Genesis 8. 
Or Jesus' own words when he taught, it's not what goes into you that makes you sinful or makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you. It's out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and murder and sexual immorality and slander, pride, false witness, coveting, the list just keeps going on. But I didn't really relate to much of that. Or that I thought, I, I, that's not me. So God in his grace helped me relate with those verses through things like my remaining sin struggles, my weaknesses, my failures, my unwillingness to change, my self-atoning, the hope that I would put in in making up for my own sins, my worship of pleasure, selfish pride, and much, much, much more. And every year that went by, it was getting harder and harder for me to prove what a great catch I was for the Lord. He let me see me. He let me see me as I am. And so he let me see his, my need for him, to see him as he is. And so a good starting point is to admit what the scriptures say, that I am a hopeless, unfaithful sinner before God. But the bad news is far worse than simply just admitting you're a sinner, right? Everybody in the world does that. Everybody in the world knows of your own imperfections. No one claims perfect, we just don't care about it. We certainly don't believe that we'll ever be held accountable. And that's where the bad news gets much worse. You come across a guy like John the Baptist. John's message never was, Jesus loves you. His message was, flee from the wrath to come. The judgment of God is coming. Every one of us will be held accountable to him on that great day. That was the nature of John's message. And many hear that. And their heart rate doesn't raise a beat. Totally calm. But if this room suddenly burst into flame, we'd all have the appropriate response, right? We'd be afraid. We'd get up and we'd run. We hear about the coming wrath of God and we think, well, that won't affect me. That doesn't have to do with me. It's other people. And that's the human heart. That was Israel in the Old Testament. Prophet after prophet after prophet would come and warn Israel, judgment is coming, it's on its way. Turn to the Lord. Turn away from your idolatry. And Israel just carried on. Sleeping with cult prostitutes for material gain from Baal. And then later going to the temple to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. Or they'd sell off their own people, their kinsmen, children, into slavery for profit. And they'd offer great tithes to the Lord. Or in many cases, they just silence the prophets. They just kill the prophets who were bringing the bad news. And one of the scariest interviews I've heard was um, Oprah interviewing Rob Bell. If you remember, Rob Bell wrote Love Wins. He's kind of a universalist. Oprah asked Bell, as a minister, what's the one message you want the world to know? And Bell answered, it's all going to be okay. This is a chilling message. A message straight from the depths of hell. Don't worry. God will not judge sin. He won't punish evil. It's all going to be okay. And Paul would say, you are presuming on God's patience and his kindness. It's meant to lead you to turn to him in repentance. But because of your hard heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
He says, those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It will not be okay. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, a God who declares, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so the scriptures assure us of this, that God's judgment for man's sin is coming It will be a day where many would rather rocks crush them than they face the awesome wrath of the Lord. And friends, until we realize that we are to flee from the wrath to come because of our sin, the cross of Christ will make no sense. Or at the least, it'll be foolish to us. We won't understand Jesus' agony at Gethsemane. We won't understand why his soul was so sorrowful even to death We won't understand why he asked God for any other way. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of physical pain? The cup of man's scorn? No, the cup of God's wrath. The Son of God was terrified to receive the full weight of God's wrath. And that should speak volumes to us. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then comes Judas and the cohort. Hundreds of people with clubs and swords. Why? Because it was the Father's will to crush the Son, to put him to grief, that his soul would become an offering for sin The father's response to Jesus' prayer was, my son, drink this cup. And so they bound him and led him away. First to Annas, who was the father-in-law to the high priest Caiaphas that year. They questioned him. They beat him there. They sent him on to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin where he'd faced countless false accusations and testimonies that couldn't have been corroborated. They all conflicted and he remained silent the whole time. In frustration, Caiaphas eventually just asked him the question, are you the Christ? Jesus answered, I am. And I will be seated at my Father's right hand and I will come again. And instead of running away in fear or prostrating themselves in worship, they spit on him and covered his face, struck him repeatedly saying, tell us who hit you, prophet. Very early the next morning, they brought him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to sentence him to death. And Pilate hated the Jews, and especially the Jewish religious leaders. They had several run-ins. We learned that from Josephus, one of the early church historians. Rome was tired of hearing about all this mishandling of Pilate and the Jews. And so Pilate had some political pressure to keep the Jews in line. And so he really wants nothing to do with Jesus' trial, but he can't mishandle it either this time. And very early on, he realizes that this Hebrew was not guilty of the charges being cast against him. And so he takes him into his headquarters. He questions him, are you the king of the Jews? Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So you are king. 
You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate brings him back out, declares to the crowds, I find no guilt in him. At least seven times, Pilate declares Jesus' innocence publicly. But he's growing more and more afraid as he hears the real charge that finally surfaces against Jesus, that he made himself out to be a son of God. Pilate's a pagan. His paganism would would have taught him that you never mistreat a demigod, a half man, half God. Because the gods sent him. And you don't want them to be angry with you. And so he was even more threatened now. Not just by his Roman government, but by the gods. And so he's really ready to release Jesus. Painstakingly so. He sends him to Herod to build a stronger case of innocence. Herod finds nothing, mocks him, sends him back. So Pilate has Jesus flogged. Perhaps to build some sympathy for him with the crowds. Now, this flogging likely was the first of two. The Greek word John uses could refer to the Roman whipping for misdemeanors. Nonetheless, uh, it was painful, but perhaps not as debilitating as the scourging that would come later. After he was whipped, the whole battalion was called over to continue. The torment could have been hundreds of off-duty soldiers. They took a thorny date palm plant, had spikes up to 12 inches long, a whole foot long. Twisted it. This would have been very gaudy looking and large. And that was kind of the point. They wanted to mock him. And that's what they did. They took the crown, they pressed it into his temples, they gave him a robe, they gave him a reed for a scepter, and they worshipped him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit at him, they beat him, they took the reed out of his hand, and they smacked the crown deeper into his skull. Pilate brought him out again to the crowds. He's now arrayed in the robe and the crown, drenched in blood. And Pilate, sarcastically, Behold, the man, your pitiful king. Instead of sympathy or horror, there was this bloodthirsty shouting that began. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. It turned into a chant. Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in this man. He's done nothing deserving of death. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And a riot started forming and the scene was growing more and more chaotic and Pilate was checkmated. One of the worst epitaphs you could have, wishing to satisfy the crowds, Pilate released for them a murderer, Barabbas, whose name meant son of the father, in exchange for Jesus, the son of the father. Pilate sat on the judgment seat and sentenced the creator of the universe to be crucified. It was common that a prisoner sentenced to execution would then be scourged, and that's what happened next. And the goal of scourging was to completely dehumanize the prisoner, bring him to the brink of death, and they'd assign only the most skilled 
soldiers trained in this torture, and they'd each use a whip with a wooden handle and had three leather thongs off of it embedded with bits of metal and glass and bone. The blows would lacerate through the skin down to the muscle and to the bone, exposing internal organs, and many prisoners never, never survived the beating. Jesus would have been stripped. His hands would have been tied upright on a vertical pole so that his skin would be more taut and easier to tear. The soldiers would rotate out when they were too exhausted to continue. And after this, Jesus' clothes were put back on him and he'd bear his own cross. The cross would have been a horizontal cross beam, the vertical beam prepared at the crucifixion site waiting for him. And while bearing his own cross, at some point in the journey, he's completely exhausted, unable to carry it. He falls, and they beckon a passersby to come and carry it the rest of the way up the hill to Golgotha, the place of the skull, which likely looked exactly as it sounds outside the city. Once there, the cross beam was laid flat on the ground. Jesus' arms would have been stretched out over the beam, and prisoners were either tied or nailed. In Jesus' case, he was nailed, likely closer to the wrists, uh, radius and all the bones meet. They would have hoisted him up on a vertical beam, positioned him there while they fastened the, the beams together. And at the base of the vertical beam was a platform, and this platform was positioned so that a prisoner could brace himself, push himself up, extend his chest, and exhale to breathe. This was not a merciful gesture by the Romans by any stretch. This was to prolong the suffering and increase the pain. So Jesus would have had to place the entire weight of his body on his tarsals, which were nailed, flex and rotate his elbows and wrists, pulling himself up to continue breathing. The nerve pain alone would have been excruciating. And many prisoners crucified would die from asphyxia, unable to keep that fight going. But think of how much Jesus speaks from the cross. Think of what he says. As the nails are being driven, he's being hoisted up. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you sense the mystery in that? What would compel him to pray that prayer at that moment? The Greek tense Luke uses means that Jesus didn't simply pray this once. He prayed it, prayed it repeatedly. As the soldiers are placing bets for his clothes, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the people and passersby are shaking their heads at him in absolute disgust, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as the chief priests and elders are jeering at him, save yourself, you Christ. Come on off the cross. We'll believe in you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His mother, his aunt, were there. His beloved disciple John, standing by his cross with unimaginable grief. I don't know if we can fathom a mother hearing what she was hearing, seeing what she was seeing, happen against her precious boy. But Jesus looks to his mom, and he's concerned for her. For her well being. 
He says, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. There was a thief crucified next to him who eventually is watching all this and marvels at him. And he comes to this conviction, this is the true Messiah. This is not just a man like me suffering here. And he didn't do anything wrong like I did. I deserve this judgment. He looks to Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And our Lord quickly responded, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Scriptures tell us around noon there was darkness until about three. And in the midst of that darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. He's thinking about Psalm 22 there. And you open up that psalm and there is unbelievable detail of what Jesus is suffering on the cross. But it also says, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. You know what those words remind me of? That's how I feel when I sin. God, how long? Where are you? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out to you, but you don't answer. I have no one to help me. Jesus is there bearing the full weight of my guilt. Of your guilt. He became sin, though he never knew sin. And this was his agony back in Gethsemane. This is the cup of God's wrath that he is drinking for me and for you. And so he feels cut off from the Lord and alone for the first time. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. All the ends of the earth shall remember Christ's cross, God's work of salvation, and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And there is a placard above his head on the cross, a charge written in every language that says, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The psalm ends, they all shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Knowing all the scriptures had been fulfilled and that he accomplished his father's will, he let out a victory cry and he shouted, it is finished. He mightily bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. And he died. What happened next was an earthquake. Rocks were split. Massive curtain torn from top to bottom in the temple, the Holy of Holies, laid bare. The sun shone brightly again, and a pagan centurion dropped to his knees, filled with awe, seeing all of this. How many deaths had he seen from a crucified prisoner? But nothing like this death 
like this man. And he glorified God. He said, truly this was the son of God. What a mystery. The son of God drank the cup of his father's wrath for sin. The innocent bore the punishment of the guilty. The gruesome nature of Jesus' death is not to make us pity him, but to satisfy the justice of God for our sin and display the mercy of God for sinners. So, beloved, the greatest mystery tonight would be if you refuse to trust in Christ's finished work for salvation. Flee from the wrath to come by running to him. He does not reject any who come to him through faith in the Son. Why do I have such confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the only one capable of saving me from condemnation? Because of what happens on Sunday. He proves in his death and in his resurrection that he alone is God and there is no other. Flee to him. Flee to him. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, though he despised the shame. And he is now seated at your right hand, where he lives and reigns. Father, I pray that we would respond to him and to his finished work. Thank you, Lord, that it is only by his mercy that we can find yours. And it is by his wounds that we are healed. Help us flee to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, let's stand and worship the Lord together.
you could be seated. Now we turn to participate in the Lord's Supper together, remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death in the joyful hope of his imminent return. Who are we that we find ourselves like Noah and his family on that ark of salvation escaping the judgment of God? Who are we that like Israel of old, the angel of death should pass over us? Who are we that Jesus, the very creator and sustainer of this world, should take on frail flesh and suffer and die? We come to this supper this night with a sense of awe and gratitude for our salvation and for our Savior. We have been saved, saved from sin, from eternal death, saved from the wrath of God. And for such a salvation, we celebrate tonight this good and holy meal. But before we do, we ask you to first please examine yourself. And if you profess a sincere faith in Christ and are living according to his word with a clear conscience, we do invite you to joyfully partake of the bread and the cup. With that said, it's not the perfect ones who partake. It's the repentant ones, those striving with God against known sins, keeping faith in their Savior. So with that, would you pull out the wafer at the top of your cup? worship with me. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take this, eat all of it. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup. He gave thanks to God. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Church, let's drink together. Praise you, Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow our heads now because Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We bow in reverence, in respect, in awe, in adoration of the person of Christ, the words of Christ, and tonight for the cross of Christ. Would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit so that our worship in this moment will bring you honor, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and genuine consolation to our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 